Thank you, Jody. Well, good morning, everyone. This is the second Sunday that we are connecting with you online only, as we're currently in stage three, phase three of our winter plan to combat COVID-19 here in New Brunswick. So welcome uh, if you're joining us from New Brunswick. If you're joining us from anywhere else in the world, welcome as well. It's so glad you're here and that you can connect with us. I hope you and those you love are doing well. If you're part of our church, please do let us know if we can support you in any way. Uh, we know that these are difficult times for many of us. So we've been journeying through Ephesians chapter 1 while I've been preaching. And last week, as we looked at verses 15 and 16, I did indicate that maybe, just perhaps, we were going a little bit too quickly. Um, you know, there's no point going at breakneck speed, is there? So this week, we're just going to be looking at one verse, and that is going to be verse 17. In all seriousness, Paul packs so much into his letters, uh, especially in the early chapters of this one. It's actually really helpful to slow right down and reflect on the wonderful truths that he is outlining. So without further delay, let's read the verse. For some context, I'll also read verses 15 and 16. Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 17. For, though, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So Paul has been telling all the Ephesians that he keeps thanking God for them. Uh, and he's heard all about their faith in the Lord Jesus. He's heard all about their love for all of God's people. The two things that mark them out as being genuinely born again. And that's what we dug into last week. And you can catch up on that message, if you like, on our YouTube channel or on our website. But now Paul explains to them that when he thanks God for them, when he's going before God and he prays for them, he's thanking God for them, yes, but he's also asking God for something for them. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, you might think, Wow, well, Paul's already spent the opening part of his letter explaining to them all of the blessings that they've received in Christ. Surely that's enough. Surely there can't be any more. But Paul knows there is more. There's always more to receive from God. He knows that the Christian life is a, a journey, and it's not about a journey going from place to place, starting a church here, serving in this way, getting more responsibility in the church uh, and authority in, in different places. I mean, Paul did all of those things. He did, we often talk about Paul's journeys, don't we? Uh, and so you think, oh yeah, well, the Christian life is a journey for Paul. He moves from place to place. Listen, that's not what Paul is really even considering and thinking about. It's not even a journey with the aim of becoming more holy. That's sometimes called sanctification. Better people, although Paul knows that's important, and he talks about it, and actually that's a byproduct of, uh, of this journey that Paul is praying about. But for Paul, the journey is a journey into the knowledge of God. We start out with conversion to Christianity. It's a bit like birth. Sometimes we call it being born again. And then our journey through life is all about knowing God better. 
So that's what he prays. He prays, and it's a great prayer to pray, that we might know God better. It's a great prayer to, prayer to pray for ourselves, and it's a great prayer to pray for other people because we're always growing in our Christian life. No matter how old we are, no matter how long we've known God for, there's always more of God to know. There's always room for growth. And let's make it clear right at the start, Paul isn't talking about knowledge of God in terms of knowing facts about him. He's not talking at this point about memorizing scripture. He's not talking about those kind of things. He's talking about immediate personal, intimate knowledge of God himself. Knowing God is at the heart of everything as a Christian. It's what it's all about, and it's where we find true happiness. In our materialistic world, we're told that happiness will come from all kinds of places, from wealth, from possessions, from treasures, but the greatest treasure of all is the treasure of knowing God. Jesus said it in John chapter 17 and verse 3. He says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. We might think, well, eternal life's about living forever. It, it, it's about no more death. It's about no more sickness. It's about no more suffering. Eternal life is an opportunity to meet up with family and, and friends again who are believers who may have passed. That's often what we think about when we think about eternal life. And all of these things are true, but they're byproducts of what eternal life really is. Eternal life really is knowing God, knowing Jesus. If we don't grasp this and we place our value, the ultimate value on anything else, even good things, then we lose it all when things go wrong. I remember going to a large children's gathering once in the UK and they were interviewing someone as part of this. Uh, and they asked this woman, well, how, tell us, how do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God loves you? And she answered, she said, well, God has given me a wonderful husband. And when I'm with my husband and, and the fact he's given him to me, he's, it's a sure sign that God loves me. And he's given me three beautiful children. And that shows me just how much God loves me. And I remember listening and thinking, well, that's great. And those are signs of God's love and blessing towards us. But what does that say to those who don't have those things? What does it say to the people who are single? What does it say to the people who are infertile? Does that mean God doesn't love them? Does that mean God loves them less? At that time, we'd been trying for children for over 10 years without success. If what she was saying is true, what would that say about God's love for us? And what about the family in our church who we knew whose son died of leukemia at eight years old? What should they conclude about God's love? These are things that we can get stuck on. And don't get me wrong, of course children are a blessing from God. Of course they're an expression of God's love. But God doesn't want us to only know him and measure his love for us through what he gives us. 
He wants us to know him even when we have nothing, and he is our ultimate treasure. I heard another story of a couple who lost their baby tragically at five months old. And very soon after that, the woman, the mother got very seriously sick. It was a difficult year. And the following year, they got pregnant again. And people around them said, oh, praise God. God is so good. And their reply was, yes, God is good. And he was good last year when everything was going wrong. They knew God. They knew God. He was good when things were going well, and he's good when things are going wrong. It's not about the things that God gives us. It's about knowing him. He's the real treasure. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He goes on and says, I want to know Christ. Paul had got a lot of things to his credit. Earlier in the letter, he just listed them all off. The family he was born into, the place he was born, the education, he'd had other things. He had them all, and now he'd lost them all. He'd lost all of those things, but it's no big deal for him because of what he's gained instead. He knows he's gained something far greater. He considers all those things now garbage in comparison to the fact that he now knows God. He's passionate about knowing God. He has a hunger for God. And that's why he prays that others may know God in the same way too. If you read about the great heroes of the faith, great missionaries or others, you'll see that they knew God that way too. They were happy to lose everything, relationships, wealth, fame, even their life in exchange for knowing God and, their co- and his, following his call on their life. And knowing God takes time. Just as knowing anyone takes time. We're born as a baby and we get to know our parents. Similarly with God, we get to know him as we grow. And it's often through the tough times of life that we really get to know someone. If a couple come to myself and and my wife, Debbie, uh, who are looking to get married, I'll often ask them to consider um, how the person they want to marry responds when times get tough. Maybe people come and say, do you know what, maybe even before they've made the decision, I'm thinking I'm going to marry this person. Maybe Maybe I'd like to spend the rest of my life with them. What do you think? And I'll say, well, how, how do they respond in the tough times? How are they when they're sick? How do they cope with that? Or when you're sick, how do they respond to pressure? How do they cope when things are difficult? What about when delays happen, unexpected things happen, things don't go their way? In those times, you often see people's true character come through because In the good times, those things don't need to come out. It's easy to make things look great. It's easy to fake what we really like. Social media makes it very easy. As we get to know each other truly, we see the good and the bad. We get to know people. And it's the same with God. Apart from with God, it's all good. With God, it's all good. We get to know him, though, when times are tough. We get to know him when things have gone wrong. What's he like in those times? What's he like when I've let myself down? 
when I've let him down? What's he like when I don't like myself anymore? There's no fast track to this, to knowing God. It all comes through experience. It all comes through the different circumstances of life, through time spent with him, and he reveals himself to us. That's why Paul prays for wisdom and revelation so that we can understand God as he reveals himself to us in his word, through his Holy Spirit, in different ways. So who is this God that we need to know? Well, it would take a lifetime to explore everything about who God is. But here are some things which just come from this verse, from verse 17. If we look closely at verse 17, we'll see that God is three in one. He's Trinity, that's often a word used for him. It's not a word that you'll find in the Bible, but we see the outworking of the Trinity in a number of places in God's Word, and this is one such verse. Look carefully. I ask that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Did you notice there? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all there in the same verse. Now, you might be thinking now, oh, no, how am I supposed to understand the doctrine of the Trinity? This is getting pretty heavy. Well, you can't. It's impossible. In fact, Paul never tries to explain the Trinity. He doesn't try to explain it. In fact, you won't find an explanation of the Trinity anywhere in the New Testament. It's just there. You'll see it clearly in some verses. Uh, It's there. Paul just kind of drops it in. He doesn't try and explain it. Some people try and explain it. Some people say, oh, well, the Trinity is like this. But it isn't, because there's nothing like the Trinity. You may have heard some people say, oh, well, the Trinity is a bit like ice and water and steam. Ice, water, steam. All the same thing, the same chemical um, element, but in three different forms. But you don't get ice and water and steam all together at the same time. And God didn't stop being the Father to come down as Jesus. And he didn't stop being Jesus when the Holy Spirit came. God is three at the same time, and he's one. When Jesus got baptized, the voice of the Father sounded out, saying, this is my beloved Son. And the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove all at the same time. We can't get our heads around it. It's impossible. And to be honest, we don't really need to. Actually, all we need to do is just say, how awesome is that? And we worship and praise God for it. Praise God. But as we get to know God, let's make sure that we get to know each person of God. It can probably be easiest to identify with Jesus because he came to earth to identify with us. He was born as a man. He lived amongst us. He talked, he taught, he, he, he died for us. He ate with us. But Jesus comes to bring us to the Father. And some of us might struggle with that, especially if we didn't have a great experience of a father. But God is the perfect father who Jesus wanted us to know. He wanted us to get to know the Father and understand what a true, loving Father is. And the Holy Spirit is someone we can either love and embrace or or even be quite nervous of. 
He's invisible, so he's harder to, to kind of wrap our heads around sometimes. Sometimes he does things which are a little strange to us. But we need to welcome the Spirit as and when he moves among us. Because this is God. The Spirit is God. He's the God we need to know, the three in one. I could say so much more about that. But how do we relate to God? How do we relate to God? Well, let's look at how Jesus related to God. We see that Jesus' whole life was about doing his Father's work. It was, it was like food to him. In John chapter, 30, chapter 4 and verse 34, his, the disciples had gone to get some food. And when they came back and offered him some, uh, Jesus said, Oh, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And, uh, you know, his disciples were thinking, Oh, that's where all the food's gone. Jesus has, has got it, has he? He's, he's, he's stored it for himself. Or, or maybe someone else has been bringing him some. They were confused. No, he was not talking about that. He meant he's doing his father's will. That's what he was talking about. He'd just been speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well, and he said, look, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He knew that by speaking to this woman, by telling her about God, revealing himself to her who he was, he was doing the will of the Father. And that was like food to him. Doing the will of God was sustenance for Jesus, and it is for us too. Our whole lives get structured around food, don't they? Um, our meal times. We, if we don't eat meals, we, we kind of lose track of where we are and what, what's going on in the day. Food sustains us, and it, and it helps us uh, in our structure of our lives. But for Jesus, his whole life was structured around doing the will of God. And that sustained him and satisfied him more than food. I'm not sure many of us have got to that point yet. I know I haven't. But doing the work God called us to do isn't intended to be burdensome and wearying. We need to understand that. It wasn't for Jesus. It's not meant to be for us. It's meant to be life-giving. It's meant to be sustaining if we know that this is the will of the Father. And we'll touch on that a little bit more later on. And Jesus knew he couldn't do anything by himself, only what the Father gave him to do. He knew his dependency was on his Father. He knew he needed the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do the miracles that he did. Um, and so he spent a lot of time with the Father. He spent a lot of time with him, talking, praying. He'd go off uh, at night, and sometimes he'd pray all night. But I don't imagine that he thought, oh, I... I do you know what? I should go and have a night of prayer now. I think he just went. I think he just talked with his father, who he loved. And I think the time probably just went. And he knew his father always heard him. So that's where he would go. And his disciples saw this, and they saw how much he delighted in it, which is why they would have said to him, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Prayer wouldn't have been something new for them, but they saw something in the way that Jesus related to his heavenly Father. And they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. Why would you ask someone to teach you to do something if you think it's going to be heavy and burdensome? Often we think that about prayer, don't we? But his disciples saw there's something different here. Jesus, teach us. Teach us how to pray. Jesus wanted to do it. He delighted in doing it. He enjoyed doing it. He didn't do it because he ought to. He loved God, the Father. He loved his Father, and so he loved spending time with him. We can so often get caught up in oughts 
which really don't help us. Now, I've said this before, and I know from feedback I've had that people struggle to hear and understand it. I can guarantee that this is going to be the subject of this week's emails to me about the message. But I do believe the Bible te clearly teaches this in so many places, so I'll say it again. We can think we ought to read the Bible. We ought to pray. We ought to go to life group. We ought to serve. If that's the way that we think, it becomes heavy and it weighs us down. It's burdensome. So, your homework this week. Write down a list of all the things that you think you ought to do. And then tear them up and throw them in the garbage. That's your homework. Because we're not into oughts. Dear Mark, I was disturbed when you said we shouldn't pray and we shouldn't read the Bible and we should just throw it all in the garbage. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray and we shouldn't read the Bible. But look at Jesus. Look at Paul. Look at others in the New Testament. They did all of these things a lot. They prayed because they were now able to come into a relationship with the Father. They could know the Spirit of God dwelling in them, so they kept asking him to fill them. They studied Scripture because it helped them to get to know more about the God whom they loved and who loved them. It, it was God's, one of God's ways of revealing himself to us. They gave themselves in service to God because of the immense joy and privilege of being caught up in God's salvation plan for the world and extending of his kingdom. They gathered with his people because they were the family that God had brought them into and now who they loved. And it, all of this was incredibly difficult. There were many, many trials. But through it all, they got to know God better. And they enjoyed him. They didn't do it because they felt they ought to. John Piper, in his book, Desiring God, talks about knowing God as basically being about pleasure. We're created for pleasure, he says. We seek it out everywhere and in everything. Yet the world has sold us a lie that we will find our greatest pleasure in money and things and family and sex and work when our greatest pleasure is found entirely in knowing God. And the world tells us well, the lie, the enemy will tell us as well, the lie that Christianity is just a set of restrictive rules that we have to live by, and they suck the life and joy out of you. No, no. If we want to live for pleasure, then we live for God. That's real pleasure. Do you know people who you just want to spend time with all the time? Well, well, God's the greatest one of all to be around and spend time with. And we can know him because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because of his blood shed on the cross. If we grasp this fully, then we'd find that we love to spend time in prayer. We love to spend time in his word. We love to spend time with people. We love to serve him. The psalmist in, in 119, Psalm 119 said, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. He doesn't say, oh, every day I have to read your law. Listen, it's the enemy who twists these means of grace. That's what they're called, means of grace. Ways to know God better. And he makes them duties which we resent and we feel are burdensome. He's done it ever, from, ever since the start. God provides every good thing for Adam and Eve. And the serpent says, oh, 
Did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree, any tree in the garden? He twists what God has done and what God gives us, and he makes it restrictive. And that's what the enemy keeps on doing. No, God did not say that. So often the things that God gives us are, that are good are reframed as duty and heaviness and pressure and law and restriction. No, they're means of grace through which God shows his love to us. Joe and Gary have been going through some of these means of grace in their foundation series, and I've heard many people say how much they're appreciating these messages and, and focusing on different things such as prayer and scripture and rest and things like that. It's good to be reminded of all the ways that we can know God. But I've heard one or two people, and this isn't anything that Joe and Gary have communicated, but I've heard one or two people say, oh, you know what, I've got to remind myself in all of this, listening to this, but I, I don't need to feel guilty if I haven't read the Bible today. Absolutely, we do need to remind ourselves of that because we're not far away from taking something wonderful and turning it into a heavy burden or a duty or an ought. We must do this. We must do that. We're not into oughts. We're into God. We're into the God who we can know the God who loves us and allows us to come and be with him. Even when we've messed up, he extends his love and grace to us, forgiving us, welcoming, him in, welcoming, welcoming us into his presence. That's the God that Paul is speaking about that we can know. And finally, he's the glorious father. It's so hard to even describe this. How do we describe God's glory. It, it, it seems impossible. We can just go through really what Scripture says. In Exodus 33, God spoke to Moses, and because the people had rebelled against God, the Israelites had rebelled against God, God said to Moses, okay, Moses, I'm going to send you into the promised land, this land that I've promised you, and I'm going to send an angel before you, and he's going to drive out all of your enemies as you go into the land, but I'm not going to go with you. He says that to Moses. And Moses, you'd think he'd be like, great, an angel doing all the work, driving the enemies out. But Moses picks up on that last thing that God says, I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, I don't want to go if you don't go with us. I'm not going anywhere unless you go with us. He'd understood that the journey wasn't about getting to the destination. He'd understood that it wasn't about getting to the promised land having the blessing. He'd understood that the journey and the blessing is about knowing more of God. That's what he'd understood. And he said, if you're not there, it's nothing. It's nothing. And then Moses prayed this. He said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God allowed him to see something of his glory. He was hidden in a rock while the glory of God passed by such radiance. God lives in unapproachable light. It's like the sun in its brilliance. We can't have our eyes open and see it and approach it. Yet Jesus prays that we will see it. He says in John chapter 17 and verse 24, he prays, Father, I want those you've given me to be with, be wet to, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus is praying 
Let my followers see my glory. Let my followers see me in my glory. John must have wondered what that was all about, the other disciples as well, when Jesus prayed that. I mean, John knew Jesus loved him. He called himself the disciple that Jesus loved in his, in his uh, account of Jesus' life. At the Last Supper, Jesus, John was the one who was next to Jesus. He was reclining with his head on Jesus. He was very relaxed and comfortable around Jesus. He'd been with him a number of years. But Jesus says, let them see my glory. And John must have thought, well, what, what do you mean by that? Well, John got a glimpse of it later on in a vision that he outlines in the book of Revelation. He says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John had spent three years with Jesus. It was very natural for him to just be around Jesus. But now, John sees Jesus in his glory and he falls at his feet as though dead. As we get to know God better, we begin to change our view of God. At first, it might be very casual, relaxed, informal, and it's true. We can now come in to God's presence. We don't have to use fancy words. We can just speak to him as we'd speak. But maybe, we don't always realize just whose presence we've come into. I've heard young believers, possibly teenagers, pray, and sometimes they begin with something like, hey God, and that's fine. But as we spend more time with him and get to know him, we find that we actually understand more of who God is and we take him more seriously and we see more of him in his glory. We're recognizing that this is the God who lives in unapproachable light yet he wants to know us. We're so thrilled to know him, we treat him with the greatest of respect and admiration. When we're in his presence, we find we're not just checking our phones, wandering to the washroom. We find we're not easily bringing criticism to him about why he's done things the way he has, because he's God, he's God. The writer to the Ecclesiastes, of Ecclesiastes gets it when he says in chapter five, verse one and two, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools who don't know they do wrong. Don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So let your words be few. So as we get to know God better, let's give our full attention to him and treat him with such reverence. Yes, we can come freely though. Parents, as we gather together as a church, when we're here in the building and you're with your families, I understand there are so many distractions and calls for your attention. It certainly isn't easy. I've been there. But do you know one thing that will really teach your children as you worship? 
It's for them to see you caught up in the worship of God, overwhelmed by him, because you've grown to know him and love him more and more, more than your kids currently do. And difficult as it can be, let them see that they're not more important to you than God is. And learn what it is to see their parents worshiping God and being impressed by him. Now, again, let me say, it's not easy. No one is judging you in how you parent. This is not an ought. Please don't hear it as that. Dear Mark, when you said we should completely ignore our kids during the worship time, I'm not saying that. But we can teach our kids through the challenges of even navigating a Sunday morning. We can show them something of the glory of God. Okay, there's so much more I could say, but let's leave it there for now. Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. This is our greatest need. Knowing God is our whole purpose. It's the purpose of our life here, and it will be the purpose of our life in glory. So my prayer for you is that you may know all, all know God better. It's my prayer for myself too. There's nothing greater to pray. The circumstances of life, the journey that God takes us on, that's not what it's all about. These are a means of getting to know God in a new way. The difficult times that you're going through, it's a means of you getting to know God in a new and deeper way because God shapes us through the events of our life. Don't just think God's there when things are great. God's there in the darkness too. In Genesis 15, it says, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord spoke. God doesn't only speak in the sunshine. Sometimes he speaks in a thick and dreadful darkness. And that's what we need. So I'm gonna pray and then Jody's just going to come and conclude this morning's time together. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for who you are. And Lord, we know we're only getting glimpses of who you are. We're getting glimpses of glory. But Father God, I pray that we would grow to know you and love you more and more each day. We pray Oh God, the glorious Father, that you may give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know you better. Lord, help us to not get burdened with things that we ought to do. But Lord, help us as we know you more to just delight in those things that you give us, those delight, delight in those ways that you give us to engage and to know you and to love you, and to love each other. Teach us, Lord God, we pray. Holy Spirit, come work amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen.